Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on July 7th, 2018 at Wellfleet Preservation Hall in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was Crush. Please welcome to the stage, we'll have him kick off the show of the story, Jerry Riley. Two words. Be careful. Now, a crush, a crush is a powerful thing. Makes you crazy, makes you lose your mind. You know, it's, it's all-consuming. And I want to tell you about a fierce crush I had. Now, I was traveling with a friend years ago in Ireland, and we went to Dublin, and we were hitchhiking around, and we thought, we're going to head north. We're going to go to Belfast. And uh, we arrived in Belfast, this is many years ago, if you know your history there. We kind of got there, we learned two things as soon as we arrived. One was that it was pretty much a war zone going on. And the second was, there was all kinds of stuff happening. There's a festival happening. So we kind of ignored the first and went with the second. And that night, uh, we went out to this jazz club that was set up just for the festival to hear some music. So we got there, we walked in the door, and there were these three young women at the door selling tickets. We said, we want two tickets. And they said, they laughed at us. They said, this has been sold out like for a month and a half. They sold out in a day when they, and there's no tickets. And we begged them and we cajoled them. We said, we came all the way from Boston to hear this band, which of course was a total lie. And eventually they, uh, we wore them down, they let us in. So we went in, we were there like 10, 15 minutes and we actually were kind of bored with the music. We came back out and we ended up hanging out on the, front ticket desk with these three young women. But really, I mean, it was one woman for me. And uh, she was really small, and she was really funny, and she was really feisty. And uh, we ended up hanging out the whole night. At the end of the night, they gave us a number. They said, if you, you, know, if you come back through Belfast, give us a call. So off we went. And, and the next day, we started traveling around. And we went out, hitchhiked around Northern Ireland. And a couple days later, I said to my, my buddy, I said, I, I want to go back to Belfast. And he started laughing. He knew exactly what was going on. And he said, yeah, I could see that. It is, but we did. He was fine. So we go back to Belfast. Um, he called us, this woman up, and, and uh, she says, oh, great, great, great. And she, she comes and gets us. She gets a friend of hers. And, they, and uh, it's like a Tuesday night in the middle of the week. Uh, she works for the BBC. She's got a business trip in the morning. She's going to London. Um, but... They take us out for like a night in the town, and we have a blast. Um, at some point over the course of the night, she says she, she's coming to the, the U.S. in the next few months for uh, a filming trip, and she'll come to Boston if she can and come up, uh, you know, come up and see me. So, um, you know, at the end of this night, she goes off to... Uh, to London, we go off on our vacation and uh, travel all around. We come home. So a few months later, the phone rings, and it's this woman, and she says, uh, my trip to, you know, all fell through. I was supposed to be coming, but it fell through, and I'm not going to be able to come. And um, so we talked on the phone. We had, uh, you know, for, for quite a while. I got off the phone. Now, over the next, you know, period of time, I was moving a lot. I moved to New York, and I was in on these sublets, and I moved four or five times in different sublets in New York. I moved up to Truro, back to New York, and moved to Boston. 
But every time I moved, I sent a little card, a little postcard with a new address, just, you know, just in case she said she was going to come over at some point. So uh, three years went by, and uh, I got a call, couple, you know, a couple of calls over those three years. Uh, but three years later, the phone rang, and it was this woman, and I said, are you ever coming over here? She said, I'll be over on Tuesday. And uh, <laughs> great. So... That summer, I was living in Truro. I had bought this like 18-year-old beater car, this rust bucket just for the summer to get around. It was an old station wagon. So I get in the car, I drive to Logan Airport. On the way, the car's uh, having trouble. I go through the tunnel, I'm sweating bullets, this car is not gonna make, it's overheating and it's not gonna make it out of the tunnel, but I get there. And I meet her and we get the bags and uh, coming out of the airport and uh, I said, I got a little problem with my car. I said, I'm a little worried. There's two ways into Boston. There's a tunnel, and I really don't want to go through the tunnel with the car the way it is, because it could be a problem. I said, so we're going to go around a long way over the Tobin Bridge. So we're in the car. We're gabbing. We're talking. I go, we, you know, go through Chelsea, whatever, get on the, the ramp, up the big long ramp up to the Tobin Bridge. We're three quarters of the way up the bridge, and suddenly, boom, 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 the car dies. Now, there's no breakdown lane. There's, there's nothing. There's a little thing this wide on the side. So the car stops, and the, everybody's flying up this, and I get out of the car. So we jump out of the car. We're on this little thing on the side of the Tobin Bridge. We're both laughing hysterically, like, welcome to America. You've been here like she's been here a half hour, and this is her first experience. Well, anyway, she stayed for two weeks. She had a two-week, uh, or she, was, she had a, uh, tickets to go back in two weeks. But she extended that for a third week. And at the end of the third week, I took her uh, to the airport. She flew back to Belfast. The next week, I quit my job, packed up my stuff, and I moved to Belfast. Now, everybody I knew thought I was completely out of my mind. It was sort of like, yeah, I'm moving to Aleppo, you know, I'm just, whatever. And, uh, <laughs> and but this, you know, this crush it just kind of grabbed me. So I moved, I, I moved to Belfast. I lived over there for a year. I can't, I got, thrown out as an Ill illegal immigrant. That's a story for another time. Um, I came back, and for a little bit, we were going back and forth, and then she moved over here. And she moved over here, and, you know, and the craziness continued. Um, you know, I say, once you get this crush, your mind doesn't, you just, you know, out of your mind. Well, we were totally out of our minds, and, you know, and all kinds of things. We started a world-famous art museum in our basement. We, uh, we, we were foster parents for 25 kids. We wrote a book together. We started a theater together. Um, hell, right here, uh, we've been, you know, for th we, we were living in a tent in the woods all summer long for 30 years here in Wellfleet. So I just want to tell you, be careful. <laughs> like, you know, a crush can have all these ramifications, can lead to all sorts of stuff, and, uh, you know, just be careful. <laughs> so let's give a huge round of applause for Betsy M. Betsy. Yeah, well, I was telling a story to a friend of mine so that she would get to know me better, and it occurred about when my kids are were the age that her kids are now. And um, my husband moved our family every four years. And 
<laughs> we, we were moving from Avon, Connecticut down to Westport and I had to move everything out of the house, into the moving truck, supervise all of that, have the 10-year-old with me while the 14-year-old was off at a friend's house and sign the papers in Avon and go back to, to um, sign the papers in Westport, go back to Avon and sweep out the Avon house. And very stressful day. And I, uh, um, this is not about romance, can't you tell? <laughs> <laughs> this may be the undoing of a romance, the undoing of a wedding, the undoing of a marriage, yeah. I um, went um, to get ready to get in the car and go back up to Avon, and my 10-year-old's watching cartoons on a mid-June afternoon in 1996, mid-June morning on 1996. I had the three dogs in the car, and I'm yelling at her. And I said to myself, if you yell at a 10-year-old, nothing is gonna get good. <laughs> so I went outside, I was leaning over, gardening, pulling weeds probably. She got in the car, she turned the key, she put it in gear and came down the driveway. Now I saw it out of the back of my left eye, and if I had kept my head there, I would have been dead. But I turned to look down the street, and so the car hit me, hit me forward, I hit the tree, I was above the hood of the car, hit the tree with the left side of my face, the left side of my body, and disappeared. So this is about me being crushed. <laughs> but as you can see, I'm walking and talking and not in a wheelchair, so it was okay. Uh, and I couldn't feel my legs, and she's screaming, and I, I combat crawled out from under the car, and I'm lying on the lawn, and I said, sit on the lawn next to me, hold my hand, now, you know sometimes don't turn out the way you think they're going to. <laughs> this is one of those times. <laughs> Go inside and call 911. So, um, it took me about six months to recover. I don't think my family ever really recovered. But yeah, when you're talking about the crush makes you crazy. I think I had a head trauma that nobody ever diagnosed because the modern medicine diagnosed me with a fractured radial bone. Not compound, so they didn't discover it first. They kept going through my whole body looking for why I had blood coming out of my urine and and my anus and why I had, you know, shock and all that kind of stuff. And meanwhile, my arm got to be this big. Um, so just saying, <laughs> sometimes life doesn't turn out the way you think it's gonna be. But I wasn't totally crushed. I walked in the ocean, shallow ocean, real calm. I rode my horse, I walked a lot.
and I got symmetrical again. So here I am, not crushed. And please welcome to the stage our next storyteller, Gwyn Gazo. I want to tell you about a crush that I had for about 25 years. The first time I saw Sarah Burrell play, it was July 1987. I was 21, and I just finished waitressing at the Lobster Pool in East Ham. And uh, we didn't have air conditioning, so after sweeping the floors, I went down the road to Jimmy D's, another bar where they had AC and I could get a cold beer. There was a band playing, and the singer, she was standing on the table. And she wasn't just singing, she was rocking out. A tall, lanky redhead with white t-shirt and white jeans. Her voice was rough in all the right places. And I remember thinking, wow, just wow. And that was the problem. I was thinking, I was always thinking and only thinking, trapped in my head with my thoughts. I didn't understand that I was gay. Even though I'd been going to the lesbian and friends groups at Wellesley College since my freshman year, <laughs> I still didn't understand I was gay. I, I thought about my attraction to women as, as a problem to be solved or a theorem to figure out, and uh, I, I just sat there thinking, am I or aren't I? Am I or aren't I? So as I sat there sipping my beer and listening to Sarah Burrell, I didn't understand what wow meant, and I couldn't or wouldn't let in what it meant. And even five years later, after I'd finally asked out my first girlfriend and taken her to see Sarah Burrell in Cambridge, <laughs> even then, I, I still was struggling to accept my feelings about women and uh, figuring out and understanding my experiences with men. Uh, but I was, I was getting there um, that, that New Year's. I spent the weekend in Provincetown with my girlfriend, and Driving back to Boston, I thought, I'll stop at home in Orleans and introduce her to my father. So we arrived unannounced, and uh, I told my dad, I've just spent the weekend in Provincetown with Roberta. We were there together. She's my roommate. And he's like, well, I'm glad you stopped to visit. Come and get some coffee. So on the drive home that night, I thought, maybe I really can do this. But a part of me wouldn't let that happen. A part of me couldn't let that happen. Claiming my sexual identity would be dangerously close to understanding and accepting another part of my truth. It would be dangerously close to understanding the, and accepting memories of childhood abuse by neighborhood boys when I was five or six. And so that part of me protected me from those memories and kept me hidden and, and kept those memories hidden in some place safe. And that part of me sure couldn't stand being seen, never mind the exposure I'd feel coming out as a lesbian. And so I guess about a few months after that New Year's Eve weekend, um, my dad, who was my rock and sense of safety in the world, died suddenly. And by then, I'd screwed things up with my girlfriend anyways. And, and somehow, that, that part of me that kept those painful memories hidden from my own awareness grabbed hold of me and it, and it hid my fledgling acceptance of my sexual identity uh, in a closet 
much like the closet where the boys had locked me with blankets and stuffed animals before they let me go and gave me money to buy ice cream. So after my dad died, everything about my lesbian identity went underground and it became something that I did during college and after college and something that really didn't have significant meaning, a phase, what my mother would say when I tried to talk to her about the lesbian group at Wellesley. Um, so whether I was looking for my dad or, or trying to replace the buffer he'd been uh, against my mom and her way of being in the world, I married a man. I did what a good girl does, and I married a man. And I married a man who was a friend and a father figure, and we had a boy. And we decided to raise him on the Cape where I grew up. So that brought me back here, and that brings me back to Sarah Burl. I still followed Sarah Burl like any good fan, and <laughs> I um, took my husband 14 years ago to see her out at a bar playing, and uh, she still wowed me. And I stood at the bar, and I looked at a high school friend, and I thought, I said out loud, you think Sarah would come home with me? <laughs> and... Um, you know, soon after that, I bought one of her CDs, and, and that's when the love affair really began. You know, the CD has songs about her battle with breast cancer and surviving that, and uh, I would listen to it after therapy, where I was finally doing the work to let in and let go of some of those dark memories of childhood abuse. And after a lot of tears and time, I did enough of that work to integrate the fullness of my story and, and my history, and uh, I felt lighter and I felt freer, and, and that brings me back to Sarah. I saw her again, back in East Ham, a September day, it was sunny, I was sitting outside on a bench on the town green, listening to her play in the gazebo, and as I watched her walk off stage, my eyes wandered from her red hair to her white shirt, her blue jean pockets, and I thought, <laughs> In that moment, I didn't think. In that moment, I realized, not in my head, but in my gut, and a little bit lower too, that <laughs> I'm gay. I was 44 years old, and I finally understood that I'm a lesbian. So even though I had to go home and, and tell my husband, I'm not going to live this life of a straight woman anymore, I knew it was time to come out. And even though people like my brother or other people in my life would say, so you're just going to do this? I knew it was time to come out. Even though a local minister said, yeah, you probably should go to another church where you'll get more support, I knew it was time to come out. And so I did. And when my mom said, you know, at this time in life, hormones really confuse women, <laughs> I knew it was time to come out, even after she bought me a copy of Menopause for Dummies. <laughs> true, true story. And so I did, I did just that. And eventually I ran into Sarah Burl and in a moment of embarrassment, I said, oh my God, I've had a crush on you for 25 years. And she just smiled. Uh, I see her sometimes and run into her at the local coffee shop and nod my head and say hello. And other times uh, I go out and hear her play music. Uh, the only difference is I know I'm gay and I always have been, wow. Please, round of applause for Ellen. Ellen! Woo! I'd like to dedicate this story to my father, Irv Garfield, who tragically drowned when he was 58 
um, on a boat fishing with his best friend, Jack Roberts. When my father died, I was 16, and among the things that I lost were the ability to listen to his great stories, all based on real events. My father was a traveling salesman and worked for a company called Edward Don that provided restaurant supply materials. And while we lived on the south side of Chicago, his territory was Kalamazoo, uh, Michigan. So every other week, he'd get up at 4 a.m., drive to his territory, visit his customers. And in addition, he was always trying to get new customers so he could grow his base. One day, he happened on um, the office of a Mr. Johnson who had a convention office to supply conventions. And he introduced himself to Mary Lou, Mr. Johnson, the owner's assistant, and said, explained to Mary Lou, you know, I'd like to, you'd introduce me to Mr. Johnson. I'm sure I'd be a great salesperson and be able to help him with his supplies. And Mary Lou was nice enough, but she explained to my dad, Mr. Johnson's been dealing with the same supplier for years. He has no interest in changing suppliers, no interest in meeting you, I'm very sorry. My father and deterred decided that every other week when he'd make his rounds to his customers, he'd go and visit Mary Lou at Mr. Johnson's office. Months and months this went on. Eventually, Mary Lou even expected my father to come in. They got to know each other. But Mary Lou was always adamant, not letting my dad meet Mr. Johnson, playing the role of gatekeeper. One day, my father walked in the office, and upon seeing my father, Mary Lou said, Oh, no, Mr. Johnson's definitely not going to see you today. No way. He's in a terrible mood. My father said, why? What's going on? What happened? Well, for his best and most important client, he needs 125 candlesticks by tomorrow. And his supplier said, no way. They're sold out, back-ordered for at least two weeks. Mr. Johnson's convinced he's going to lose his best client, and there's no way you're going to meet him today. My father said, you call Mr. Johnson, and you tell him that I will have 125 candlestick holders to him tomorrow. I promise. And Mary Lou looked at my dad and said, how are you going to do that? They're not available, not for at least another two weeks. My father said, I promise you'll have them. How are you going to deliver them, she said. Tell Mr. Johnson they're coming via carrier pigeon. She just looked at him and rolled her eyes. My father walked out the door, went down to the nearest payphone, for those of you that remember what that is, put in a call to his best friend, Jack Roberts, who was also his best client, who was the owner of the Pantlin Hotel that was right down the road from Mr. Johnson's office. And he said, Jack, can I have 125 of those candlestick holders that you use? Can I have them for tomorrow? Can you pull them out of the warehouse for me? Jack said, fine, no problem. Done. One more thing my father said. When the delivery guy brings them, can you pack them in paper bags with two holes at the top? <laughs> Done, my father, Jack said, taken care of. Needless to say, my father got Mr. Johnson as a new client, and Mr. Johnson used my father as his supplier going forward 
for the rest of the account. We always thought my father must have really embellished that story. It was so crazy. And then a few years ago, when my mom passed away, we were going through papers, and it came upon a telegram. And the telegram said, Irv, the candlestick holders arrived via carrier pigeon, just as you promised. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. Give it up for Ellen. Please give a warm welcome to our next storyteller, Casey. Um, so this is a bucket list item and I'm terrified. So um, it is, I should start with my rules. I have three rules for potential um, crushes. <laughs> And they might be PG-13, I don't know, um, so I'm going to swear. Um, one is have your shit together. I want you to pay your bills relatively on time. And if you live with a family member, I hope it's because um, they're sick or you're in between places, but you are not my age and living with your mother. Um, <clears throat> number two is be good at something. Um, I love to support people I care about. I will go to your model airplane racing competitions if you are really good at them. Um, please do something else. Um, <laughs> number three, and number three is new. I've stuck with one and two for a very long time, but number three, I've had to adapt. Um, don't be a dick. So, back to the start of my story. In um, 1997, I was going to college in Virginia, but I was touring around going to see my favorite band from Boston everywhere. I wasn't a groupie. I worked um, occasionally selling merch and just occasionally following them around and never dating any of the band members. Um, I went to Irving Plaza in New York City. It's one of my favorite venues. It's two stories. It's really fun. Um, and they were playing, and when I walked in, the handsome boy behind the merch counter said, that woman is going to be my wife. We had never met before. It was really off-putting and kind of scary. Um, <laughs> but we talked a little that night, and we watched the band play, and he was on tour with them. They were going to the Gorge in Washington, across the country. He was gone for three months. He wrote me postcards from all over the country. He gave me his beeper number, and we kept in touch. <laughs> it was 1997. <laughs> um, so for three months, we were apart, and I actually just found all those postcards, and they really warmed my heart. And uh, we got back together, and we dated for a couple years uh, in college, and then went our separate ways. Um, I got married, not to him. I got divorced, also not to him. <laughs> and a few summers ago, I got a message. And it was really funny because on Facebook, I was posting pictures of our last trip together, which was cross country. We drove from California back to Virginia where I dropped him off. And we did all of these um, uh, national parks. We did Zion and Bryce and Arches and Capitol Reef and Moab. Um, and it was great. And we broke up at the end. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but I was looking at these pictures and I was posting them on Facebook to some of my friends and we weren't friends on Facebook and we had no mutual friends. Um, 
And then he contacted me out of the blue and I thought, this is something. And he asked to come visit me and I was seeing someone and so I said yes. And so I told the someone who was kind of lukewarm about us that if he wasn't going to be warmer, that um, I was going to see my old boyfriend. And so we dated for another year, and it was wonderful and terrible and wonderful and terrible, and it turns out that um, he didn't really have his shit together. And he was really good at things. He um, illegally grew 30 plants of marijuana in his basement. (laughs) And he was kind of a dick. Um, So it was bad timing. And when do you break up with someone? It's, you know, we're long distance. And um, then his mom died. (laughs) And I didn't go to the funeral. And so I crushed him. I know, I'm sorry. All right, welcome to the stage, Deb McKay. My first crush was my father. When I was born in the delivery room, this is his favorite story to tell about me, he put my head in the palm of his hand and my feet only reached his elbow. And he looked at me with the most unconditional love that I could never to this day find any love that measured up to that. So that crush on my father determined to this day, I dreamt about him last night, determined my life. Later that day, the day I was born, he was a professor of theology. He was giving an exam on uh, some 20th century theologians, and he had an extra credit question at the end of the exam. Who is Deborah Ann McKay? (laughs) I tried everything in my power to make this man love me and get rid of my mom, you know? (laughs) Never worked. Uh, When we would take the long drive to Cape Cod every summer, three-day three, three day drive, I would ask him questions that I thought would make him love me even more. And there were questions like, Dad, he was a famous theologian, Dad, could you just explain to me one more time the five different proofs for the existence of God? <laughs> you know, I was like seven. Because <laughs> I knew he loved to do that. He loved to do that. So as we're driving in the car, my mom and my two brothers, we would sing like the farmer in the dell, like over and over and over till everyone fell asleep except my father and me. And then he would tell me the five different proofs 
for the existence of God. This, I'm seven. And uh, I would pretend to understand them. <laughs> you know, like I love this man so much. And then, uh, and then uh, he became the minister in a church. And my mom and my brothers and I would sit in the front row and we'd look up at him and he was wearing his long black ministerial robe and he would, he was very charismatic and very handsome and brilliant and he would say the benediction at the end and I would look up at him and crush is just really too mild a word. Um, I don't know, I think I confused him a little with God, you know, I mean, he was up there preaching and later he uh, became the president of a really famous theological seminary and um, we lived in this big mansion where the president of the school lived. And uh, I noticed that coincidentally, I ended up teaching for 32 years on the campus of a school that looked identical to that. Um, I wrote a book and uh, I tried not to make it all about my dad, but it was. And uh, man, it was like a love letter. And I remember giving my mom the manuscript and she was like, she was like, God damn it, Debbie. She's like, your father, this whole damn book is about your father, and you kill me off in three pages. <laughs> Which, maybe that wasn't so subtle. I don't know. Um, I went to college. I majored in philosophy and theology, just like he did. You know, I went to divinity school, just like he did. You know, I did so many things. Um, I tried to have lovers that were the opposite of him, like uh, convicts and drug addicts. <laughs> Old women. <laughs> Children of my friends, dogs, trees, whatever the fuck I could do, you know, to get away from him. And, you know, and then the one great thing was that uh, I did learn unconditional love from him, so. Could we bring to the stage, when I get my glasses on, Max Paul, please. And so uh, I was one of the people who signed up at intermission. Right. Uh, yeah. Woo! My, my parent, my dad and my grandparents are in the audience. Um, and I'm gonna share a crush story. And so um, a couple weeks ago, yeah, like three weeks ago. Oh yeah, I'm 17 by the way. So you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of it all. Uh, three weeks ago, three weeks ago, I found myself uh, in Japan. And that's another story. I found myself on the Southern Island of Kyushu uh, on a beach. And the night before, I had also been in Japan uh, with a couple of people I had just met. Uh, they were from Mexico. And we went to uh, the red light district. Uh, hey, Bubby. Um, <laughs> and uh, hold on, hold on. It, 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 I got five minutes, right? I, I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta move this along. Um, 
Anyway, so it's, it's me and, and three other Mexican guys, and they're like, oh, yeah, let's go. We're in Japan. Um, and I say, okay, you know, go ahead. Have your fun. And, and three guys go in, uh, and, and three guys come out. And, and one guy is, you know, really happy. He's enjoyed his experience. Uh, and, and one guy is just, you know, thinking about the whole ethics of paying for sex and what it says about our patriarchal society and whatnot. And so he's, he's kind of not having it. And the other guy was just, like, sad. Like, this has not been a good experience for him. And it's really just kind of marked him, you know, because these are the formative years. These are the best times of your life. And, and you just... And he was, he was just feeling rough about it. And, and I didn't go. I was waiting outside. And I was excited because I had made plans to go to the beach uh, with this girl who I had a crush on and who was also Mexican, who I'd also just met. I thought it was fun. You know, they're, they're out, out for the count. You know, it's just going to be me and her. We're going to have a great time together. It's going to be wonderful. And, you know, I was really excited and whatnot. But this guy who's just so, he's just sad. He was just crushed by this, by this experience. He said, you know what? They're coming to the beach with us tomorrow. It'll be great. We're going to cheer you up. And so the th us, the three of us, we're going to the beach. He's still, you know, kind of in his feelings. Us two, we're, we're going to the beach. It's going to be great. We meet some Vietnamese people, and we start playing volleyball. And he's really good at volleyball. And all of a sudden, the power dynamic just suddenly changes. Me, you know, being the person handing him down this great time, all of a sudden, we're all just looking up at him in, in uh, admiration at his volleyball powers. And riding off this new wave of self-esteem, he starts talking to the girl I have a crush on. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's volleyball. It's really not... You wouldn't think it's that much of a status symbol. But, uh, but yeah, who knew? And... And the clouds start coming over the sky, and, and I don't really want to be in this situation anymore. Uh, so I, I start sitting down, and I start just looking at the ocean, and the clouds are coming over the sky. And meanwhile, him and her are talking, you know, chatting, laughing, touching each other's arms. Um, and, I, and in the back of my head, I'm like, I should probably do something about that, but I don't do it because I'm just watching the clouds roll in over the beach, over the ocean, and I'm just sitting there. I'm not saying anything, and I'm just quiet and I'm, I'm just thinking about how surreal this moment is and I, and I just I have a lot of you know adolescent emotions going on at the time and it's just it's brewing and the sky is gray and just this endless watercolor of colors just washing over me and the feelings are just washing over me and I sit there and I don't say anything um, and so then I kind of start talking it how much time do I have left I really oh thanks 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 okay <laughs> So I start kind of talking. I'm trying to make sense of this. You know, formative years, formative years, get, getting ready. Um, yeah, getting ready for life. Uh, formative years, start talking to myself, and it, and it, it kind of it works out, you know, just processing this event. Uh, and then I start talking louder and louder, and it gets to the point where I'm just yelling at the ocean as the gray clouds come in. And only then do they start paying attention to me. And I don't realize this because I'm just in this zone. And they start tapping me on the shoulder, Max, 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 are you, are you okay? pal? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Um, and then uh, we took a bus and went home. And coincidentally, uh, that is how I got over it. I, I got over the crush uh, by chatting with uh, the ocean. And, and that's the end of the story. Eric J, please. I am going to tell you about my first crush. And this was in first grade. And about all I remember was that 
She had long black hair, jet black hair, and she was very kind to me because we had moved in the middle of the school year and I was new to town. She was just nice. And I was still really surprised to get an invitation to her birthday party because it wasn't like one of these huge parties that all the kids go to. And my dad let me pick out the present that I was gonna get her, which was unusual. And usually I deferred to him on these matters because of course he was getting judged too, probably more than I was. And I remember I knew exactly what to get her and it was kind of a weird toy. It was like a doll that was under a bubble and it had some kind of scent to it that you could like replenish, like I don't know if it was a spray or a drop. And what, so what you do is that you, you know, you'd spray it and then put it, it would be under a bubble and you take the bubble ball off and the, it, there would be a scent to it. That was it. That's why it was weird. So, um, but I knew when I gave it to her at the party that it was her favorite gift of any of the gifts she got. And when I left that party, I said to myself, this is meant to be. And then at the end of the school year, she went to private school, and I didn't see her for a couple of years, mainly because my parents, I guess, didn't understand how important she was to me. <laughs> and then in third grade, I went over to my friend Danny O'Hara's house because my, my parents were going out of town for the weekend, so I was sleeping over at his house that weekend. And I walk in, and she's there. And Turns out she's friend, best friends with Daniel Harris' sister in the same situation. She's staying over there for the weekend because her parents are out of town. I have no memory of what happened that weekend. Just <laughs> that when I left, I said to myself that this was meant to be. And then I didn't see her again for a couple of years. In fifth grade, I went out to Y summer camp, and I went out for the camp play there, which was Fiddler on the Roof, and I was cast as Tevya. And Nancy was my wife, Goldie. And um, there's a song that, not one of the better known songs, that's like, do you love me? Do I love you? You know. And the end of the song is like, after 25 years, it's nice to know. And then there's supposed to be a kiss. And I was like, oh, shit, this is great. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, it was like I was in fifth grade, so I was like playing shy and everything. And then... And, and I really, and the director was like, oh, are you having a problem? Do you not want to kiss? Do you know, whatever. And, um, and I really wanted him to say, like, damn it, this is like an artistic production. You have to kiss her. <laughs> and he was like, okay, so it's okay. You can just, like, take her hand. And I was like, shit. I was like, I won't go, well, I'll talk more about this at a different story, but it was also like a really dangerous production, Fiddler on the Roof, like there were, he had like kids climbing out on roofs of buildings and like the ghost scene, and but it was good, I think. So then my parents kind of scraped the money together and I got to private school in seventh grade. And, um, you know, I wasn't one of the super popular kids, but I played football, so I got invited to like a kissing party and she was there. And at that point, we did kiss. And, you know, again, I left the party thinking, this is meant to be. Only at the end of the year, I got kicked out of private school. And I wasn't super bad. Like, I just didn't want, I just decided I didn't need to go to classes that I thought were stupid. 
And I used to go to the library instead. So I would cut. I wasn't like smoking weed on the railroad tracks. I used to go to the library, partly because I had a crush on the librarian, Mrs. Greenspan. But it's a different story. And she never said to me, like, what are you doing in the library in the middle of the day? Like, shouldn't you be in school? So she, I think she kind of liked having me around, too. Um, so anyway, I, I get kicked out of private school, and I go back to public school. And then, you know, there was no reason we couldn't have kept in touch, but it was kind of like, I don't know, it was like public school, private school. It's kind of like jets and sharks, and I wasn't brave enough to be Tony, or, or I might have been Maria in that situation, actually. And then we kind of, you know, drifted to high school, and I had a girlfriend, and to college, and to life. But I always thought, like, maybe one day, we'd run into each other again and we'd get together and something would happen. And you know, sometimes I'd be like in Salt Lake City, even like you know, 10 years ago or something, I'd be in Salt Lake City and I'd be like, oh, I know, like Nancy's here somewhere and I'm gonna run into her. But you know, that never happened. And so you know, I kind of learned a lesson that what's meant to be isn't always meant to be. But that's not the end of the story. There's a quick coda, because Facebook came along, right? And so I get in touch with her, and I didn't send her a note saying like, oh my god, I had such a huge crush on you from like first grade. To, but I just sent her a note saying like, oh, I think we were in a production of Fiddler on the Roof together. I don't have any photos, do you? And she wrote me back saying, you know, my parents died, and, and my sister has like all the scrapbooks. She took all the scrapbooks, but I'm sure there are photos, and I'll get you some, which she never did. Um, and we're up, at, you know, I was up here at my house. And I'm looking at her Facebook profile, and I was like, oh my god. And I called my brother and sister-in-law were visiting, and I called them over here. And I was like, look at this. And my sister-in-law looks at her Facebook profile, and she said, she married a guy, like her husband is your doppelganger. She married a guy that looks exactly like you. Welcome to the stage, Bernard. This is a story about my biggest crush. And it's also a story about Wellfleet, how this biggest crush and Wellfleet got together. So we were born on two different continents in the same year, which is already a good year, a good sign, because it was a good year. And uh, well, I lived my life, I grew up in Germany, and she grew up here. And uh, I um, got to go to New York to visit a friend of mine from high school in 1982, no, 1981. And I got very sick and I had to go to the hospital. This is uh, just important for later in the story. Um, <laughs> Um, so I thought, well, I cannot end this New York experience like that. And um, so I went back the next year. I got a job there. I was living there for a year. And then I had to go back to uh, Munich. I um, founded a family. I married. I had three children. My major, my biggest crush, which I didn't know at that time, not yet, also had three children on the side of, of the Atlantic Ocean. And um, so through the years, I uh, had a couple of difficulties with my um, 
walking. And so I went to different kind of doctors. The classical medicine didn't really help. So I tested this and that. And finally, I heard about Ayurvedic medicine. And I went to India uh, into a Ayurvedic clinic. And um, so there I started doing yoga again. And I was very stiff. And um, as many guys, and there's actually yoga for stiff guys I went to in Vancouver, <laughs> which is great because it takes the uh, pressure off. Anyway, I, was, I felt terrible. And uh, somebody, not the teacher though, somebody came up to me at a point during the hour, it was this beautiful woman, and said, you should really put a plug under your butt. That doesn't look healthy at all. And I said, well, I, I did, actually, and it felt much better. And I was really surprised. I said, wow, somebody's caring about me here. This is amazing. So after class, we uh, put back our props, and uh, I came up to uh, her, and uh, I thanked her for her advice. And we did something which I never do, usually. We did like a high five. And um, I guess it was just so we could touch at least a little bit. At least that was my, my approach. Um, after yoga, I usually went down directly to the beach to have a swim. Uh, I like to swim. And there I saw her already in the lounge chair you know, under an a, a umbrella, which didn't help because it was a cheap umbrella. Um, so. I went straight over her, and there was a lounge chair next to her, which I wanted to sit in and talk to her. But the guys who are actually uh, guards for, uh, like for the ocean came up, rushed up to uh, us, and kind of asked her, is this OK if this guy is sitting next to you? And she yeah, that's OK. That's totally OK. Yeah. So we <laughs> were sitting uh, next to each other, talking. And it turned out that we were both having um, three kids. We're pretty much uh, more or less the same age. And so we chatted and we talked. And uh, she was um, going into the ocean with me. And um, there was uh, one problem going into the ocean. And it was one big wave. And uh, so when we got out, or we wanted to get out, we both got um, pretty much uh, smashed by that wave. And she actually lost her top of the bikini, which I honestly did not see, because I was totally upside down anyway. <laughs> and she managed to get it on before we went off uh, to the beach again. So then um, I talked to her. No, actually, there is something which happened before this. Um, I talked to her once uh, during lunchtime, uh, and she looked really beautiful. She was very uh, tanned and dark hair. And I talked to her in Italian, because there were a lot of Italians around. I, I, for some reason, I thought she's Italian. And she looked at me and said, what did you say? <laughs> and so I repeated. I just said, well, uh, I want you to ha have a wonderful lunch, you know. And um, so that was it. And I went uh, to my with, my with my little plate to my own table and had my lunch in solitary. So after that event at the um, 
at the ocean, we had lunch together, we had dinner together, and we had some friends met there. And you know, in these Ayurvedic clinics, you go there for treatments in these very strange green gowns. You look like you're just coming out of a surgery room. And um, so everybody looks maybe more sick than he actually is, but uh, <laughs> that's just the way uh, they run the place there. So we were sitting there, you know, getting ready for our next treatment, and in my green gown, she, and, and there is a beautiful girl um, like offering you uh, some kind of tea, and so we were chatting again, and. Um, so of course, when you're sitting there and you're know, waiting for a treatment, you talk about you know, what your problem is and all that, you know, like in a clinic. And then um, another day, and I think that was the day before she had to leave, um, I, I invited her. Um, well, we had a, uh, the day before we had a nice dinner with friends uh, going on to another trip, so it was uh, really fun. And I invited her over to my place and... Uh, um, and she said something very um, funny, or it wasn't funny, but it sounded funny to me. She said, um, I'm going to heal you, you know. And I said, well, that's fine with me. <laughs> uh, and um, so to make a long story sh shorter, um, she had to leave the next day, and I leave out some details. But... Um, I was staying another week, and for some, uh, this resonated uh, so much with me. And um, I was in a relationship, she was in a relationship. We both knew that it wasn't like the, the optimal, like not the major crash. And um, so when I got back home, I wrote her an email and said, listen, um, I really want to meet you again um, because that did not feel at all like, like a summer romance and I want to meet you in your natural habitat, you know, not somewhere in India. And um, yeah, so I went to Boston and this is four years ago and since there I'm here in Wellfleet and my major crush is here in this room. <laughs> Would we please have Donna Sue to the stage? So in the 1980s, I was young and I lived in Israel. And I met a boy while I was swimming laps at the King David Hotel. And he was adorable and very Israeli and he came from a large Kurdish family who were builders, and so they knew everybody in the city. And he took me under his wing and decided he was really gonna take care of me, but we couldn't quite figure out, were we friends, were we more than friends? We didn't know, it's a lot of tension. So I had a job at the time as a TWA ground hostess. And I would meet the tourists at the plane with a little sign and then bring them around and sell them night tours and all kinds of tours. And I would also make restaurant recommendations to them. And for that, I would get all kinds of dollars under the table, black market dollars, for every tourist I sent to a restaurant. And I could eat in any restaurant in Jerusalem for free. 
So one night I come home from a long day with the tourists and I'm, I'm done. And I'm a 20-something-year-old young woman who thinks I'm overweight and I haven't had a good bowel movement in many a day. And so I had had um, a friend send little French laxatives to me from Paris. So I'd never taken them before. And I thought, all right, I'm not going out at all for the night. Um, I'm in. I popped three of them. And I put my pajamas on, and that's that. And I get a phone call from Yoram, and he's like, come on, Orbach, we're going out. He's like, I want to go eat in East Jerusalem. This was at a time when you could travel back and forth between East and West Jerusalem with no fears. And so I said, no, I really don't think it's a good idea. And he said, no, no, come on, come on, we're going, we're going. So I said, okay. So we go out to dinner, and because they, they know that I can send them tourists, they wine me and dine me, and they, like one plate of food after the next, after the next, and the evening's wearing on, and I feel my stomach really starting to rumble. I was like, okay, Yorm, we gotta go. Really tired, we gotta go. And he's like, oh, just a minute, just a minute, and more people are inviting him for a drink, and finally I get him to leave. So we're in the car, and he's the kind of guy, he just knew everybody in Jerusalem, and so he would drive to a friend's house, honk the horn, and then they would come out from their balconies and start talking to each other. And so after the first balcony, I said, you know, you're my, I could, are we going to go up to their house? Because by then, my, I'm, I'm like doing all I can not to make noise and let him know. And he's like, no, 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 I just have to go drop, you know, I have to go drop something off. And, and he was also king of backing up. He would go backwards down every tiny street in Jerusalem, slamming on the horn and yelling to people in balconies and throwing things. And after the third or fourth house, I said, you know, wait, I really, can, can we go up? I just would like to use the bathroom. And he was like, no, no, that's okay, that's okay. And so I just have one more stop. I was like, I, I really, I really don't think so. And then finally we're on our way home and were coming down the street to where I live. We just have to make a left turn. It's Rehov Mitudela turns into Aza, and I'm home free, and I'm, I'm really like my legs are crossed at this time, and I'm barely talking, and, <laughs> and there's a red light at the corner, and all of a sudden, this laxative really takes effect. And I'm wearing, I don't know, many of you might be around my age, Jordash jeans <laughs> with, with very, very, very skinny tight legs. And they have like a zipper on each side. And they're tucked, my socks are kind of like tucked into them. And I've got shoes and my bowels released. <laughs> right in the car at the red light, and it's down my pants. It's, 
in my socks and under my, like, and, and I started to cry. And he turned to me and he said, why are you crying? And I, <laughs> I said, I shit myself. And he looked at me and he went, oh my God, you did. <laughs> I opened the door and I got out of the car and ran across the street <laughs> like that. And I ran to my house and got in the shower and I thought, well, I am clearly never, ever going to see him again. And I'm in the shower and I'm crying and, and I have to peel everything off and there's shit in my socks and squirming between my toes and my shoes, everything's in the shower. And I'm just crying and staying there as long as I can and I come back out, you know, wrapped in a towel and he's sitting on my little futon and he just put his arms out and he said, come here, Acha Pacha, and he gave me a, a big hug. So we never did turn into a romance and we've been friends all these years, I guess, I don't know, 35 years. And um, when I see him to this very day, he has grown children, grandchildren, and when the last time I saw him a few years ago in, in Israel, I walked in the door and he looked at me and he said, <laughs> Orbach must be here. So, Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian and Caitlin Langstaff and sound engineered by Mark Van Bork. To find out when your next opportunity to tell a story with the Mosquito is, follow us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever podcasts are found. You can also watch videos of our storytellers on the Mosquito Story Slam's channel on YouTube. Remember to tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. <laughs> <laughs>